0: Hey everybody and good morning, this is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development and we're really fortunate to have with us Rob Dannenberg, who's the Director of Operations for Phoenix LiDAR Systems. Good morning, Rob.
1: Good morning, um, Dr. Hansen. It's uh, nice to talk to you.
0: You too, and thanks for being being willing to do this for us so our students and those watching the recording can learn a bit more about LiDAR and what Phoenix does. So what don't you tell us about your interest in LiDAR and, and uh, how you came to be doing what you're doing?
1: Um, sure. So uh, I'll be honest, I've got kind of a, a unique story to get into LIDAR. Um, I actually was uh, started a unique consulting business for our law enforcement and first responders, which uh, kind of applies to what you guys do a little bit. Um, and we were doing photogrammetry, um, mapping for landslide assessments and everything in the Northwest. And it, we started doing accident scene investigations for rail incidents, um, highway incidents and everything else, and realized that LIDAR would probably be a better application for a lot of those because a lot of those applications had very heavy vegetation around it and we we couldn't model um, risk um, underneath the vegetation it was easy to model a landslide um, after it happened but uh, before it was happening for risk Um, photogrammetry really wasn't penetrating that vegetation um, so i dove into lidar this was back in 2011, um, before LiDAR was really being used on UAS, and traditional airborne LiDAR was having um, some density issues to be able to model what you really wanted to, um, to model for that. Um, so I was working with uh, Regal and Phoenix LiDAR um, uh, at some different times to take some of their helicopter systems, lighten those loads a little bit to be able to put them on UAV for quicker access when helicopters weren't uh, accessible, um, and still being able to put those up on a helicopter when we needed to map larger areas. Um, and that, kind of started my Lidar journey. I had that small company in the Pacific Northwest of the United States doing that for a while, ended up selling that company and worked with um, a couple large engineering firms uh, setting up their remote sensing, airborne remote sensing programs over the last five years um, with some pretty high degrees of success, uh, doing everything from Uh, traditional surveying and mapping to emergency response and storm response, um, really focusing on the LIDAR side. During the COVID pandemic, um, I decided that um, I wanted to make a little bit of a change. Uh, The company I was with was an amazing, great company. Um, They decided to take a different direction, um, sold to a publicly traded company, um, and at that time, I decided that um, I've been doing the field operations and running field operations for a long time, and I wanted to have a little bigger impact on what LiDARs were available to the market. Um, me and Grayson have known each other for a long time, gave him a call, came over to Phoenix LiDAR to help kind of derive the next generation of LiDAR products um, and help run some day-to-day operations to get the right tools into the hands of the people that need them.
0: Fantastic. So who would use LiDAR? You've talked about mapping.
1: Um, so LIDAR's uh, got a pretty broad range of use, and there's different types of LIDAR too. Um, but mapping and surveying is probably the primary application. Um, so professional land surveyors um, have definitely adopted LIDAR at a, at a very high level um, throughout the US, Europe. Um, you're seeing it very heavily adopted in Australia, New Zealand, and across the board. It's, um, it's a rapid way to gather a lot of data, right? Um, it also doesn't have some of the pitfalls uh, that photogrammetry or structure from motion has, um, but it has its limitations. It's, you know, you've got to use the right tool for the right job, um, but that is a very heavy use case. Uh, utilities are using it a lot to do vegetation encroachment, um, and with the fires that we have in the west here, after storms come in and blow that, um, it's a very good way to model um, vegetation, and um, in an emergency management aspect, LIDARs being started have been used for um, biofuel mass and actually looking at the biofuel mass to help predict um, like if a wildfire hits where it's going to burn out to um, and that kind of stuff and clean that up. Agriculture uses it um, for density of crop, you know, and crop heights. Um, it, applications are pretty endless, um, but I would say the, the general rule is if you need an accurate um, as-built of an area, uh, lidar is probably one of the most efficient ways to get that. Um, so, um, anything you need to to see and model and map uh, would be um, a great use case for lidar.
0: So, can you explain to us what lidar is, how it how it works?
1: Sure. So LIDAR is, um, it's actually an acronym, stands for Light uh, Detection and Ranging. It basically works very similar to radar, but instead of using radio waves, it's using light waves. What's nice about um, LIDAR is it's an active sensor. It has a laser on board that creates a pulse that shoots out and it will detect the, basically, radiation reflectance coming back off of a target. Um, There's multiple different types of LIDARs, multiple different um, wavelengths of LIDAR that can be used to see different things, Um, but um, basically most LIDAR units are going to shoot a series of pulses out, and uh, will detect um, accurate ranging. So anybody that's been in the golfing world for a while or you know, very active shooters that use um, laser-like range detection, they generally have a single laser to figure out how far something is away. Ours um, and all, all LiDAR units are basically that um, upscale to where they're shooting anywhere from 100,000 pulses per second to 1.8 million pol- pulses per second at the smaller lighter weight UAVs we use. Um, And because of that um, heavy, dense vegetation canopy, you can still generally penetrate that um, and get down to the ground floor.
0: Yeah, talk us through this graphic and and the difference.
1: (laughs) Okay, so one one of the big things uh, when it comes to LiDAR is there's two primary types of LiDAR when it comes to the mapping world. Uh, You have a static LiDAR, and that is generally a LiDAR that's set up on a tripod um, that is going to scan an entire area 360 degrees around, and depending which one you're using, ranges and everything like that. Um, Those are generally very standard, the highest precision LiDARs there are because there's no movement involved, right? So that LiDAR is is stuck on a tripod from a known point. And then you have um, kinematic LiDAR, um, and you'll hear that referred to in a lot of different ways. But mobile LiDAR, which is... Um, definitely an earlier application of kinematic LIDAR um, in the survey world, Um, and then you have like airborne LIDAR, but that's when you have a LIDAR that's moving through um, space and you have to have um, IMUs and GPSs to give it its location of where it is. So you'll lose a little bit of accuracy on on doing that because there's an inherent error that's going to come into that. Um, But this, um, this, slide or this graphic basically represents um, what we consider um, a successful workflow to collect lidar um, to get all the way to um, an accurate calibrated registered um, colorized point cloud if you care about the colorization of it um, to be able to create it uh, in deliverables of which um, you need to do. There's a big misnomer in the lidar world that oh I can create a pretty point cloud and, and have really cool graphics to be able to show people but at the end of the day that a lot of time is too much data for people to digest. You're talking about billions of points in 3D space um, that are very accurate. So taking that point cloud and then deriving um, whatever deliverables you want out of that is pretty important. Um, But here at Phoenix LiDAR, we we are always stressed to our clients, whether they're driving or they're flying it or they're carrying it on a backpack, um, that the planning of their operation is the most important. right? Depending on what LiDAR they use, they have different settings, uh, which will affect range and intensity and reflectance. Um, Whether they need to have overlap with their LiDAR, whether they have cameras involved or or different sensors involved that they need to tie together, but if they don't plan that operation um, and how they're going to collect the data, the chance of them getting um, a good acquisition um, is definitely reduced. Uh, Then the next piece about that is actually making sure that your GPS and your IMU Uh, receive the right data, they need to give the most accurate and precise uh, position that they have. Um, and Then with um, one of the differences between Phoenix LiDAR is we actually provide real-time data, so as you're collecting data, you can actually view the point cloud live of when you're uh, when you're collecting. Wow. Make sure you're gathering what you want. Um, we can do that colorized live, so we can actually tie in the cameras directly to that, uh, depending what type of imagery sensors we have. We do thermal, hyperspec, uh, multispec, NDVI. We can do all of that live. Um, so if you're on a helicopter and you have a big collect, you don't generally want to go collect for five hours, come back, and then see if you got everything you wanted. You, you want a better idea as you're moving forward. And as you get through that and you collect your data, um, how to do some rapid data reviews to make sure you collected everything you want. And then we'll, um, we have some proprietary software, but we also use um, some industry standards for software. And we'll walk people through how to um, post process their data, do their adjustments, bring it to a survey ground control. Um, if they need that, you know, for real-world accuracy, um, how to filter out any of the data that they don't care about and then push that data out um, to that deliverable. And, you know, in an emergency response environment, nobody wants to, you know, filter through billions of points. They, they want to surface, right? They, they want to know, mm. what does the ground look like and how do I get to mm. that ground as quick as possible? Um, so um, how to basically expedite a lot of that. Um, and LIDAR has the unique advantage of, not having to break you know, hundreds of photos apart into pixels and then relate those pixels to each other to create that 3D model, um, that every single one of those points that have returned um, already have that that place in space. So um, you can generally post-process that uh, significantly quicker.
0: And the future of LiDAR, um, do you think that it's predominantly on drones? Do you think it's automated? What do you think is the, the future of LiDAR?
1: Um, I will never say that uh, drones are the future of LiDAR. Uh, Drones are a key aspect of LiDAR. Um, (laughs) But with any remote sensing technology, and I don't care what you use, um, you need to be able to put that, that sensor, that scanner, in a place in space to collect data. Um, Sometimes UAS makes the most sense. Sometimes a manned helicopter, sometimes a fixed wing aircraft, sometimes it's a train, sometimes it's a boat, you know? Um, So we try to be a little bit platform agnostic. I I will say a majority of our sales do go to UAVs, um, but uh, we do do a lot of manned helicopter. We do backpackable and everything else. Um, I think really where the future of LiDAR is, as you're seeing these scanners get better, more precise and smaller, Getting more versatility out of them, and I think one of the, the big things you know, five and ten years ago with lidar is you bought a lidar scanner that was either a kinematic terrestrial scanner or you bought one that went on an airplane. There wasn't a whole lot of in between. Couple helicopter um, sensors because helicopters can carry the weight of it, um, but that was it. And even ten years ago um, and five years ago, you were buying. Um, I would buy a lidar to go on a drone. But then I could never put it on a helicopter because it was lightweight, fit on a drone very well, but uh, didn't have the range to go on a helicopter to fly higher. What you're seeing right now is a lot of multi-use scanners coming out. Um, So um, a lot of the scanners we sell, and regardless of who the manufacturer, the the actual LIDAR is, where the integrator that that makes it as a whole is, um, we sell scanners that you can put on a backpack, you can put on a truck, you can put on a train, you can Mm -hmm. put on a car, move it to a UAV, move it to a helicopter, do fixed wing. Um, with it, um, without a lot of trade-offs. So it used to be you would have dramatic trade-offs if you did that. Um, and there are scanners that um, definitely do better from an airborne perspective than they do from a mobile perspective. And there's scanners that do better from a, a mobile perspective. But most of, you know, the the higher-end scanners that are in the market can handle like minimum of like a one and a half meter range outwards of you know 150 to 300 meter range, and some can go significantly further than that, right? Um, but I think the future of LiDAR is really the versatility um, and getting them light enough to be able to uh, to put them on whatever platform you decide is best to put the, the sensor where it needs to be to collect the data you're looking for.
0: Without giving away any confidentiality or any trade secrets, could you give us some examples of projects that you've worked on recently?
1: Um, yeah, so uh, we've worked on... Uh, so we do a lot of projects with universities and everything, and they always come with a lot of the most unique applications, right? Um, and they're... Uh, I'm not going to get into specifically who the university is. Um, that, that they can feel free to do that, and they do enough marketing. You guys can figure it out um, out if you want to look into it. But we did um, a, a four-sensor payload. Um, so it was a lightweight LIDAR scanner, um, a Honeywell hyperspec um, nano-camera, um, a radiometric um, calibrated thermal camera and an RGB camera. And they're using this in um, swamp and very complicated environments um, to, to do some envir- environmental pieces, right? Um, and that's that's a pretty unique application. It's definitely a, um, they, they also add other, other sensors on their end that we don't touch on that, um, but they're, they're trying to come up with a, basically the, the catch-all um, that they can collect all their data in one pass. They do everything from a UAV. So we had to use lightweight scanners and everything like that. Um, but, um, They've had a, they've had a lot of success they've been doing it for a year and a half it, they just have gone into their second and third scanners um, mm. you know to be able to cover some more areas but um, th- that's a pretty unique thing um, we've also built uh, custom scanners for people doing snowfield and glacier mapping so they can uh, kind of monitor what the snowfall looks like and what that's gonna how that's going to affect uh, water resources for the next year and everything else and um, you know, one of our clients did that with uh, NASA recently um, as a big R and D study. Had a very successful um, project, and now that's that's going to be an ongoing thing in the states that they work in. Um, we work with um, Harvard University; is doing a lot of things in South Africa um, with some unique applications of, of LiDAR and RGB um, and everything like that. And we we built most of their scanners for them to do that. Um, but the um, it, it really ranges. I mean, every. Almost every week, I have a client like tell me something very interesting that's going on. Um, recently, there was um, Canada. They found um, like a burial ground, uh, like a Native burial ground. Wow. And everything like that. And they wanted to do the archaeology um, on it. And they uh, were able to use our scanner. And they were one of the people that have mobile helicopter and a UAS option. And they were able to like bring all three of those to bear um, on that project to get the best data um, for their clients. And um, I, I thought that was um, super interesting that um, mm-hmm. they were able to do that. And then... You, i'm sure you guys have all been aware of all this um archaeological finds that they've been finding in south america with um like these incan and mayan ruins and those kind of things and most of that has been attributed directly to lidar um of lidar having the penetration to get through the, those ridiculous vegetation canopies and still being able to model the grounds and, and find things so those so just, are the ones i find the most interesting
0: so for newbies like me we're trying to figure it out and understand so with lidar the pulses would go through like you say vegetation so it can actually go through objects things that are in the way uh, to a certain level and then you can map that out what's behind it
1: yeah so it doesn't technically go through the x-ray i guess a good description of this is when you shoot a laser pulse it's kind of like a flashlight and if you ever shine a flashlight against a wall the closer you are to the wall you have a smaller footprint the further you get away that footprint gets bigger Mm-hmm. So that's called beam divergence in LIDAR, and um, there's pluses and minuses to beam divergence. But um, say you have a laser footprint, and just to put this in perspective, I, I don't know of any laser footprint that's this big, but say you have a meter um, footprint of your laser on the ground, right? Um, and a piece of that laser hits a leaf, a piece of it hits a power line, a piece of that laser keeps going down, right? You'll get those multiple returns back from that from that single laser pulse, Right. So um, most of the higher end lidars can do five, 10, 15, 20 returns um, uh, of of a, of a single laser pulse, depending on that beam divergence. If anything blocks the entire laser, you're only going to get that single return back. So if you're flying over a roadway and there's nothing over the roadway, it doesn't matter uh, what your laser footprint is. You're going to get a single return, um, which is good. Um, but if you have that vegetation, um, there's some different philosophies on this from some different LiDAR manufacturers. But uh, the way that I generally relate it to clients is if you can walk into any vegetated area and you can look up and see light penetrating the canopy, you can get a laser pulse through it, period. Um, so if you, if you walk in somewhere and it's completely pitch black, probably can't get a laser pulse in there, right? Um, because everything would be covered. Um, but you can get multiple returns on most of the scanners to, to be able to, to model through that dense vegetation. And you only need a single return, unlike structure for motion or photogrammetry to where you generally need two or three angles on the same target to be able to create a point on it, right? We only need one point for, you know, a millisecond or so on it.
0: So if there's someone watching the recording, one of our students, an emergency manager, and they're listening to this and thinking, that's pretty cool, and um, maybe they want to... Um, make this a major or something they want to pursue in their career, what would you say are some things that they should do to prepare themselves to be highly effective?
1: There are some amazing papers out there on uh, LiDAR technology and how it works. Um, I would say if you're going to make this a major, there's probably four major applications you could go in uh, with LiDAR. Um, one is the standard geospatial industry that we've kind of been talking about um, survey, but we also have optical and electrical engineers that are designing these LIDARs, right? Like, do you want to be the guy designing the the physical equipment of how the laser works, how the laser shoots, um, and see some of that evolution? And it's been dramatically evolving over the last four years. Um, you're seeing LIDARs that wouldn't have been thought about five years ago you know starting to hit the market now um so you can be on the, the physical side there's also the software integration side it's taking that raw data and being able to um, write the programs to process that data to do um, ai algorithms to classify data um, when i say classify data we just talked about going through vegetation or urban areas sometimes you want to be able to separate that out what does my ground look like what is my vegetation what are my man-made buildings and that kind of stuff and you can classify that lidar differently so you can only look at what you want um and there's a programming aspect to that uh that a typical programmer that you know knows you know programming code and everything like that if they don't understand the geospatial aspect or the 3d world would struggle with that and i think that that is definitely a weak point in the industry is there there's not a lot of um high level programmers that that can handle a lot of that right i mean there are there are very good ones um, but they it's not the same as needing somebody to create an app or a database for you you know um that that's definitely a a heavier level and then you have um the the upcoming applications the stuff that people maybe haven't directly done um yet um uh, i'm i'm a pretty um interested guy in LiDAR. So I tend to read about a lot of applications. But several years ago, I was reading about a university trying to actually get more information out of the LiDAR since it uses an infrared um, laser. And there's some different nanometers that we were starting to tie a couple of those together. And when they were scanning like a building, they were actually trying to use that almost as a hyperspec camera to get more information off, not just the spatial thing, but use the reflectivity um, of it, mm-hmm. the intensity values and everything to detect. Um, Vegetation growth in walls, or um, other right. pieces, or brittle rock, and that kind of stuff. And I think that's still, you know, very, very premature in the industry. And then you have probably the largest use case for lidar, which is self-driving cars. Um, uh, most self-driving cars, uh, with a big notable exception that Tesla does not believe in the LiDAR um, theory for self-driving cars, um, but they are using them. And that's honestly where a lot of these small lightweight LiDARs came from. Um, they might not be the most precise in the world, um, but depending on what your application is, they, they generally meet it. But they were designed by like Velodyne and Ford Motor Company investing and everything because they wanted to put them on cars so they don't run into hospitals, wow. right? Um, and that is... That is probably the fastest growing. That's not something that Phoenix LiDAR really dives too much into. Uh, We are definitely more on the uh, geospatial side of the LiDAR than um, Mm. self-driving. But then machine learning is also becoming a huge aspect on um, teaching machines to do the auto classifications and that kind of stuff, um, because that is still a very manual process with most softwares. And that would be the most time-consuming thing that I see with LiDAR.
0: Interesting. A lot. There's a lot of opportunity for people to specialize even within this area of LIDAR.
1: Absolutely. Yep.
0: Yeah. Well, look, as we wrap up, Rob, I really want to thank you for your time. I know you're busy every day with many things you need to get done, but giving your time for our students and those watching the recording to understand more about LIDAR and its applications and opportunities, really do appreciate you giving your time to us.
1: Absolutely. I appreciate um, the time and the opportunity to talk to you, Dr. Hansen. And uh, if you ever need anything else, don't hesitate. And if anybody viewing this video wants to learn more about Phoenix Ladder, feel free to reach directly out to us. Um, You can go to phoenixladder.com. It has all the contact info.
0: Wonderful. Well, just for everyone's information, uh, Rob, please don't go away as we wrap up. Um, We've got Rob's LinkedIn link with the show notes directly underneath this video which is on linkedin on youtube and on facebook so feel free to connect with us at uard.ac.nz or uard.org if you're an emergency manager and like many emergency managers you have a big binder big folder full of all of your certifications, your training, you're constantly upgrading and learning new things. But often that training that you've done doesn't translate into an academic degree. That's what we do. And we do it really well. So if you'd like to pursue getting your bachelor degree or your master's and get recognition for everything you've done, please do reach out to us, uard.ac.nz or uard.org. And thank you again, Rob. And we'll see you all again very soon.